Uh, it's no secret in her house that Carolyn's mother, Clara, has a profound devotion to our dog, Taffy. Um, she's an old dog. She's um, in human ear- years, almost 100 years old. Very uh, wise old lady. And uh, Carolyn conceived the idea a couple of years ago of having me take Taffy to Santa Claus and uh, get a picture of Santa Claus holding Taffy. Uh, you have never been humiliated until you have uh, stood in line waiting for Santa Claus with a dog in your arms. Love will make you do odd things, believe me. Uh, the closer we got to Santa, the more rigid Taffy became. She was in, in rigor mortis the, the last uh, few stages. And finally, when I, when I handed her to Santa, she went absolutely berserk. She began to bite and scratch and claw. And actually, I was f- pretty impressed with the whole thing. I, I, she's a shrewd uh, analyst of character. Uh, <clears throat> popular these days to knock Santa Claus on Christmas, and I'm really not trying to do that. But uh, any more Santa Claus is a symbol of materialism in our culture. It's odd, isn't it, that the event that more than any other event in history is spiritual now is perhaps one of the most materialistic holidays uh, of the year. And it's interesting that we've come to this particular passage this morning because it deals with with money, uh, with the worship of mammon and materialism. And so it's a very appropriate uh, passage for us. First Timothy six seventeen through 21, if you take your Bibles, turn to that section. We're bringing our study in Timothy to a close. It's the last uh, couple of paragraphs in the book. We'll be moving on to a new study after the first of the year. You may uh, recall the opening scene from the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Poverty-stricken Tevye prays, Oh, dear Lord, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great, great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? And then he proceeds to sing, If I Were a Rich Man. Staff wanted me to sing that for you this morning, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to inflict that uh, Upon you, I, when I sing the Dabba 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 Doos, it's sort of a cross between Tevya and uh, Yogi Bear. <laughs> but the last line, if you recall, or the last uh, stanza goes like this. God, who made the heavens higher than the land, you who decreed me surely what I am, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And Paul would say, maybe, maybe, <laughs> perhaps it would. Now I want to begin reading with verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up for uh, lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The uh, phrase is real life, that they may take hold of real life. Now, Paul, as you know, has been writing about certain people who want to be rich, who are eager for money, who believe that the chief 
end of life is to gain wealth and the power that wealth supposedly confers. Uh, we're inclined to envy the rich and powerful, the rich and famous. Uh, we watch uh, segments and television shows about people who live in beautiful homes and, and live in style, and we're inclined to envy them. Paul says, on the other hand, they are to be pitied. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Some, he says, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's First Timothy 6.10 in the context that precedes our verses this this morning. What Paul is saying is that if you love money, it'll make you miserable and it'll do terrible things to your soul. Now again, to reinforce what I said last week, Paul is not saying that money is the root of all evil. It is not. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money is a neutral commodity. It's neither good nor bad. It's when we're devoted to it. It's when we love it that it corrupts our uh, our hearts. Paul is not saying either that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not true. Evil has other roots. But what he is saying it is is that it is a root of evil and not evil that we do to others, but what is done to us. That's what he means when he says those who want to be rich pierce themselves through with, with many griefs. The love of money does two things for us, or to us. The first thing it does is that it draws our hearts away from good. Uh, the Lord put it in his en- enigmatic way in Matthew 6. The, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Our Lord loved to put things in a way that made you ponder them. This is a case in point. He said, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. You know, a human uh, on a physical realm, we know that's true. If our eyes are good, we can see. If they're not, we can't. But what Jesus is saying, analogizing from that statement, is that if your eye is focused on God, your whole body will be full of light. You will have wisdom. You will know how to make just and righteous decisions. If your eye is not good, if it's focused on money, how great is that darkness, he says. The state of the heart is determined by what we see. If we want to make money and we make it our devotion, our minds will be darkened. We'll become confused and uncertain. Our judgment will be clouded and we'll begin to make bad decisions, choices that defy logic and deny our values. We'll cheat on our income tax. We'll pad our expense accounts. We'll cut corners in manufacturing and marketing our products. Doesn't make any difference. We'll be talking about a multi-million dollar organization or a mom and pop shop. If our eyes are on money, we will cut corners morally. We will make bad decisions, evil decisions. The light within will go out. And then as Jesus said, how great is that darkness. We've all seen it happen. Money corrupts our hearts. As George MacDonald said, the, the, the rust and dust that corrupt the treasure eventually corrupt our hearts. Corrodes away our sense of what is right. We'll do anything to make a buck. The other thing the love of money does is it draws our heart away from God. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and 
and Mammon. Uh, Mammon's not a god. He's actually personifying money in that sense and contrasting with God. Money is, uh, or Mammon is just an Aramaic term for, for uh, uh, possessions, earthly possessions. It's a neutral term, again. But what God is saying is that you cannot serve possessions, acquisitions, money, and the, and the things that money will buy and, 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 and love God. He, he doesn't say you shouldn't. He says you, you can't. If the main thing is to see how much money we can make, we'll take no thought of God. We'll begin to dabble with God. And then we'll trivialize His Word and we'll, we'll drift away. So what, what our Lord is saying is that the love of money deprives us. It destroys the qualities that are necessary to pursue after, after God. Now, as I said last week, the only way to, to deal with mammon is to pursue after God. As Jesus put it, you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and you'll hate the other. If you love money, you, you can't pursue after God. It's just that simple. Your vision of God will be clouded. You'll not see him. You'll not understand him. You'll not know him. You'll not grow in grace. But conversely, if you pursue after God, then money will lose its attraction uh, to you. So the real question is, is what, what is the inclination, the direction uh, of our hearts? Now, uh, coming back to Paul's instruction here in 1 Timothy, if you follow the argument through, Paul first addresses Timothy's heart, and he says, don't you run with those that are pursuing after money. You pursue after God and after godliness, after righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness, as Jesus puts it. And then teach others to do likewise. It always begins with us. Timothy, you pursue after God, and then you teach others to forego the pursuit of money and to pursue after God with all their heart and all their soul. Remember, Timothy was left behind in Ephesus. He was responsible for a number of churches which were under the leadership of others. Paul writes to him, and he's to pass these instructions on to the leadership of of these churches. And Paul uh, commands Timothy to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. As I pointed out, money can do uh, bad things to you. Paul uh, indicates that there are two other things that money can can do. One is it can make you proud, make you haughty, make you snooty. You think you're above it all. You don't have to mix with with the unwashed masses, the hoi polloi. You don't have to socialize with them. You don't have to come down out of your exalted place and and mix with people on a, that are on a lower level. And, and that's one of the problems with money. It, it makes you feel that you're above it all. You think you're better than others. Uh, you don't have to get your hands dirty in order to, to make a living. It makes you snooty. Remember those... Uh, Eyeglasses that uh, wealthy women used to use, uh, lorgnettes, they were called. They were eyeglasses on a handle. And, and my mother used to call them a sneer on a stick. <laughs> They'd look over their glasses at you. you know. uh, I was raised uh, around money, around the uh, Neiman Markup crowd in Dallas. And uh, my parents lived in a high-rise in University Park in North Dallas County, uh, Preston Towers, it was called. They lived up on the 15th floor. 
And uh, you could go down, there was an underground basement, and you could walk through the basement, and it, it was just a row of Cadillacs, one after the other. You know, that, that's what you drive in Texas. Occasionally, a Lincoln Continental, but mostly Cadillacs. And I, Carolyn and I were in seminary at the time. We were poor as church mice. And, and we drove this uh, Nash Rambler. You remember what those things looked like? <laughs> Guys at seminary used to say I was like Job. I was always sitting in my Nash heap. And it, it looked like, a, like an inverted bathtub. It was even white, so it looked like a porcelain bathtub, you know. It smoked like mad. And I'd drive that thing down into the basement, you know. And look, People would look at me and sneer. And, what, what is the smelly thing that's, that's being driven through? And that's what that's what money will do to you. See. It'll make you snob. It'll make you proud. It's odd that it does so. It's odd. Because very often people who have money have nothing more than money. You ever notice that? Now there are there are some wonderful exceptions. I I know some wealthy people who are who are wise, godly, thoughtful people. But uh, there are some people who, if they didn't have money, they'd be fools. But it's interesting, if they have money, we tend to think of them as influential and powerful and important, and we defer to them and we confer with them. All they have is money. That's all. That's all. There's nothing wrong with, with money, but neither does money add anything to our character. It's just the coin of our realm. It's a commodity. That's all. But yet, there's something intrinsically true of wealth that it can make us proud. And that's something we need to, we need to, to be on the lookout for. If God has bestowed money upon you, you need to be willing to spend time with the 90% of, of our world that make up the little people of the world, the people that Jesus spent his time with, the, the poor, those that are deprived, those that are, that are not the recipients of uh, the blessings that, that you, may, uh, you may have. Uh, that God may have given you. The, the other thing that money does is that you're inclined to trust it. You depend on it. You rely on it. Uh, Paul says uh, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. I read somewhere of a, a banker who had on his desk the plaque that said, In God, I-N-G-O-T, In God we trust. That's the problem with money. It, it can replace our trust in God. We can believe that it'll make us secure. If we have enough of it, we'll never have to worry about anything. And one of the Proverbs says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it to be an unscalable wall. But the truth is, money is one of the most uncertain commodities in this uh, in this world. Uh Jesus talked about the deceitfulness of riches. Uh, money talks, we say, but mostly it lies to us, telling us that if you just have enough of it, if you amass a large enough estate, then you'll, you'll never have to worry about anything uh, anymore. But uh, the proverb, there's a proverb that also says, cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like like an eagle. Whether we know it or not, we live in a very tenuous, fragile economy. Almost anything could rob us of our wealth. Almost overnight, a drop in the price of stocks, an economic recession, a bad decision by the Fed, a, a political takeover, or, or someone can simply steal it. They can embezzle it uh, all away. As Jesus said, thieves break in and 
steal. Someone's always ready to take our money away from us. And this friend of mine says, foolproof schemes don't work because fools are too ingenious. So the, the result is that, that wealthy people can't enjoy their money. They're always worried about losing it. It's one of the advantages of being poor. <laughs> you know, to worry about anybody taking your stuff, you know. So what if they break in your house? There's nothing in there worth, worth hauling off. All of you know Rod Ritchie, our high school pastor. His his father, Ron Ritchie, is a long-term friend of mine. <clears throat> Wonderful guy. He's coming up here to speak to our men at our men's retreat in January. By the way, that's another gift you could give, too, uh, to your husband. The... Uh, Ron uh, moved over to Half Moon Bay when he was on our staff at Peninsula Bible Church, and he was he was he was very poor. And they, li- they moved into a little A-frame, and they had very little furniture, had almost nothing. And there had been a number of break-ins down there in that area, and police came by, and they they wanted to register all of of Ron and and Anne Marie's uh, valuables in case they were stolen. So they knocked on the door and, and they said to Ron, you know, would you pre- please let us come in? We want to register your valuables. Ron turns to Anna Marie and says, hey, Anna Marie, get the dog. She said, <laughs> well, that's kind of nice, you know. <laughs> Proverbs says, the sheep, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. A rich man may ransom his life. But a poor man hears no threat. Paul says, listen, if you're counting on your money, uh, you may be up for a rude shock. It's so uncertain. You could lose it at a moment's notice. Rather, trust in God. Don't trust in riches. Hope in God who gives richly and who provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's an interesting passage. I was thinking about that this last week, and it occurred to me that that passage is the answer both to materialism and asceticism. What Paul says is God gives everything for our enjoyment. God gives wealth. It's his prerogative to give it to whomever he wills. And if he has given you wealth, enjoy it. That's what Paul is saying. Don't feel guilty about it. He's going to explain in a moment what it means that God gives wealth. But if God has been gracious to you and and he has given you uh, uh, resources, financial resources on which to live, then then enjoy them. Don't, Don't feel guilty about that. It's a wonderful gift that God has bestowed. But understand that it is God who gives wealth. See? Frankly, most wealthy people are wealthy as a result of dumb luck, if I can put it that way. J. Paul Getty was asked one time how to make money. He said, well, some people strike oil and some don't. You know, it's just, just about that simple. Wealthy people often, often think that they are wealthy because of their own business acumen, because of their own skill, their ability. But by and large, it's a matter of being at the right place at the right time. And the book of Deuteronomy says, Remember the Lord your God, for this was said to Israel, Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers, as it is today. When Israel went into the land of Canaan, they were, they were rich. 
The Canaanites were a very wealthy uh, uh, culture. They planted vineyards, they planted olive groves, they built beautiful houses. When the Canaanites had been uh, been driven out of, of Canaan, the Israelites moved into their houses, moved into their walled cities, inherited their vineyards, their and, and God said, just remember when you, when you move there, who, who gave this to you? Don't let it all go to your head. So if, if God has given you wealth, thank God for it. It's not the result of, of your ability. Some of the, some of the best businessmen, some of the most brilliant people I know have lost everything. Because money is so tenuous, so uncertain. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed. Don't let it go to your head, but neither let it make you uh, guilty. I, I have a friend in Texas who uh, bought a thousand acres of farmland up north of Dallas in Dallas County. And about six months after he brought, bought that piece of land, the Corps of Engineers raised the level of the lake that was about a half mile to the north. And he ended up with a thousand acres of waterfront property, which quadrupled in value almost overnight. That's just dumb luck. That's all it was. It had nothing to do with foresight because he had no idea that that was going to happen. God granted wealth to that man. So Paul says, don't trust it. Don't let it make you arrogant, prideful. Just be thankful if God has, has enriched you. And then Timothy goes on, or Paul goes on to tell Timothy what money is for, what the wealthy are to do with their resources, verses 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Uh, there are two ages, according to the New Testament, the Old Testament too, for that matter. There's this age, the present age, and there's the age to come. And Paul says that when you give, when you share, when you're magnanimous, when you, you give to meet the needs of others, you store up treasure not only in this age, but in the age to come. You lay hold of life that is life indeed. Remember Chris's story last week about the man that was buried in his gold Cadillac, and the man says, that's, that's, man, that's living. Say that. No, no. No, what's really living is, is using your money in order to, uh, to, to minister, uh, to others. Now, the New Testament never says that wealthy people ought to give all of their money away. Our Lord was in contact with wealthy people from time to time. Nicodemus was one. Joseph of Arimathea was another. They were disciples. They were followers of Christ. Barnabas was an exceedingly wealthy man. He owned, uh, uh, plot of land in Cyprus, which is like owning a city block in the middle of New York City. He was very wealthy. None of those people were ever told to give all their money away. The only person who was told to do that was the rich young ruler. And the reason was because his his gold had become a chain that held him, kept him from following Jesus. He was this wonderful young man who came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to inherit life? He's a wise man. He realized that we're here in this life to find God and for no other reason. And he was hungering and thirsting after God. But he thought there was something he had to do. And so Jesus said, you know the commandments, do those. The man said, well, I've done them. And Mark says that Jesus looked at that young man and he loved him. So this beautiful, moral young man 
tremendously attractive person and and he loved him. And he said, all right, I'll tell you what, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. See, that's the answer to his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is, come and follow me. But what kept him from following Jesus was his money. And he turned away from, from our Lord. He had a glimpse of eternal life. And he turned away from it. He walked away from it. And Luke says our Lord looked after him and he was sorrowful, but he did not chase after him because he knew that only life could teach him the emptiness of mammon. Uh, traditionally, this man did finally come and, and, and become a follower of Jesus. We don't know because we, all we have is the middle of, of the story. But the Lord's point in that story is not that everyone should give their money away, but rather they should come and follow him. And if money is our idol, then we will not follow him. But what our Lord says is that we must be rich. We must do good works. Actually, I think he is he's making a distinction between the gift of money and the gift of ourselves. Uh, there are always two things that we consider investing in investing. One is short-term yield and the other is long-term yield. And he's saying that 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 with respect to money, there is yield both in this life and in, and in the next. And what we can do in this life is give ourselves to people. So even if you don't have a large amount of money, you can, you can give of yourself. You can do goods, do good, you can uh, be, you can do good. And then you can be rich and generous and willing to share in terms of your uh, financial resources. Uh, the the best gifts are always labor intensive. Uh, you know, some of, some of you, and I don't mean this in any sense to be a judgment on families that have double incomes, but some people uh, have double incomes simply because they want to provide more things for themselves and for their children. Some people have to both both spouses have to work simply to make ends meet. That's one thing, but if people are if both spouses are working simply because they want to provide more things for their children, they're going to discover in the end that what their children want is not things, but their parents. And there are people that are so busy trying to provide for their children that they're never home. They're not loving their children. They're not spending time with them. And uh, here I think Paul is talking about the need to invest ourselves in others as well as our money. But then there is that investment of money that we need to be making into missions, into ministries, into the lives of people. As you see that people have needs, to give to meet those needs. And as Jesus put it, without letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, without making a big deal about it, without even letting them know, perhaps, that you're giving. Just just provide. Buy things that are necessary for them and and Paul says the result is that you begin to joy, enjoy real life. Here again is a statement of that, that odd paradox that if you give yourself away, you'll find yourself. If you try to find yourself, you'll lose yourself. The happiest people I know are people who, who are not uh, enslaved by their money. They're not grasping and greedy. That's the best way in the world to, to make yourself miserable. The happiest people are the people who who are willing to uh, to give and to invest uh, in others. Let me close with a story that Jesus told. There was a fellow who embezzled a fortune. 
from his master. Master called him in. Said, "What is this that you're doing? What do I hear? Give an account of your management. You can't be my servant any longer." So this uh, fellow thinks to himself, "I'm in big trouble. What will I do? Too old to dig, too proud to beg." I know what I'll do. He says, I'll set myself up so when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. You know the story. He goes to one of his master's debtors. And he says, how much do you owe my master? The man replied, 800 gallons of oil. He says, okay, take the contract and write 400. Change the contract. He approached the second and said, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He said, take your bill and make it 800. Jesus said, listen to this. Now, he's not, he's not condoning the, uh, the duplicity of this unscrupulous steward. But listen to what he says. The master commended the manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind and are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, You'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's the point? Well, not to be as dishonest as the steward, you see, but to be as shrewd as he was. Using the coin of this room to make eternal friends. See, one of these days you're going to step into, into eternity. And that's, that's just the next world. You know, it's just right here around us. And someone's going to walk up to you and say, I'm here because you gave to Nick Armstrong. And Nick Armstrong led me to, to Christ. See? That's what Jesus meant by making eternal friends. What a wonderful investment. The only thing we're going to send into heaven is our character and, and people that have come to Christ. People that we've led to Christ. People that we've discipled. People who in whom we've invested in, in various ways. They will be there to greet us in eternal habitations. Some of you have heard me mention before uh, our friend Lee Yi. Uh, many of you remember Miltini Lee when she was here a number of years ago and spoke to her our, uh, at one of our women's conferences. Lee and Miltini uh, are an extraordinary couple. He uh, was a an officer in an artillery outfit in Europe. When he was mustered out, he came to Stanford, was in the MBA program there, and he and Miltini were involved in a Bible study that Carolyn and I had for some years in our in our home. He graduated from Stanford with an MBA, went to work for Goldman Sachs. This was back in the early 70s, I would imagine, late 60s, early 70s. First year he was with Goldman Sachs, he made $100,000. Second year he made $200,000. His father had been the Minister of Education in China before the communist takeover. He had hundreds of friends all over China. He'd just get on the telephone, call them up, sell stocks to them. He said it was very difficult to go home at night because it was like mining gold. Every time I picked up the telephone, I made another $10,000 or so. He said it was like like a miner swinging a pick. Every time I swung the pick, I hit another nugget, and I it found it very hard to go home. The third year, he was at Goldman Sachs quit. And he became a missionary in Hong Kong. He's there to this day, ministering to businessmen there in, in, that, uh, in that community. He was asked by Stanford University to explain 
why he made that change. Uh, Stanford has a uh, uh, sort of a house org and a alumni newsletter that that's uh, mailed all over the country, and they ask him to explain why he why he changed jobs. And his explanation in that letter was, "I did so for the reason that everyone does. I got a better offer." He said. See, now that's what Paul is saying. You want to invest your life wisely, invest it in the lives of others. Now the last paragraph of this uh, this book reads like this. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. This is Paul's Last word, last words are lasting words. Timothy says, everything I've been telling you is true. This is not good advice. This comes from an inspired apostle. Guard it with all of your hearts. And then the interesting thing is that in the benediction, grace be with you. He expands it to include us because the you is plural. He's been writing to Timothy and he gathers us in. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Lord, deliver us from that illusion that something that we put on our back or something that we ride in, something we live in, something we put in our homes is going to make us happy. The world all around us tells us that if we we buy more, we invest in this, if we borrow against tomorrow so we can have what we want today, that we'll be happy. The longer we live, the more... It comes home to us that nothing that we ever purchase in this life, nothing that we acquire will ever satisfy us. Lord, teach us to be wise in our investments. Taking the funds that you've, you've delivered to us, seeing ourselves as stewards of these funds. They do not belong to us, they are yours. And using them in wise ways to make eternal investments. We ask that you would judge all of our hearts, Lord, especially in this time when when we're being seduced by the world to believe that that money matters and the things that money can buy are the things that satisfy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.